Welcome to Embrace the Imbalance, the podcast that shares lessons learned from all kinds of people. I'm your host, Tina McIntosh, and I see no reason to wait, so let's get to it. Our guest today can be described, well, with three simple words, inquisitive, caring, and irreplaceable. And I absolutely love that last one. And if you've spent any time in the Indianapolis area, you probably know the family name. Welcome to the podcast, Bruce Buchanan. Well, thank you. Uh, my best friend from college used the word irreplaceable. And I, you know, you don't think of yourself that way, but the context that he put it in, uh, I kind of liked hearing that. That was okay. <laughs> yeah, that, you know, I've heard a lot of words doing this podcast and that one is probably my favorite that I've heard. It's true. You know, we're replaceable in a lot of ways in our life, right? With certain certain um, career paths or certain relationships even, but oh, wow, irreplaceable. It did, it hit me. So I like that one. So for those who haven't spent a lot of time in the Indianapolis area that are listening, Bruce, tell us why your your family name is so well-known. Well, I'm, I'm quite humbled by our family history. And when people look at me and go, wow, you're really successful. You know, I think back, uh, I'm a sixth generation Hoosier. So our family came to Indianapolis uh, in the very early 1820s when the city was first being started and planned. And when they moved here, they, they started a tavern at the corner of New Jersey and Washington streets before the National Road was built. And that's where the city leaders uh, that were to come were planning the future of the city. And so our family has played a role in supporting growth, uh, community service for six generations. And I'm blessed that we're still in Indianapolis and we're still strong and still contributing. So I feel that I'm a steward and that I'm just building upon what my predecessors have done extremely well. And quietly, for the most part, that is true. Not and not a boastful. You know, there's not a, a not a boastful air that comes with the family. The word irreplaceable creeps back in. You know, as you're saying it, and it's interesting. You're talking about it, and I I'm a visual learner, and I'm, I'm visualizing your ancestors. You know, kind of um, huddled around you. I had no idea how how deep rooted the Buchanan family is in Indianapolis. That's really beautiful to hear. Uh, and now, nowadays, you, tell us about your job, because I think that's an, a fascinating, fascinating point, too. Well, a lot of people think that I grew up in the funeral business. I'm a fourth generation owner, but my dad, who actually went to embalming school, because his family wanted him to stay in the business, he came back after finishing first in his class, and he said, Dad, I want to be a lawyer. Uh, so you can imagine the rift that that caused. But over the years, my dad contributed as a thinker and as a lawyer and as a developer. So he helped grow the business, but we didn't grow up in it. And so he bought it from his uh, sister who uh, got the business because dad didn't go into it. So dad bought it late. And then I came into the business late. I was 40. So you think about all your life experiences, and then you get into an opportunity to be a steward of a very meaningful, successful local business uh, that serves so broadly. And you go, it's really interesting how the things I've done have prepared me to lead the, uh, the company. Yes, I think that's true. And it's a great, it's a great lesson for listeners to learn as well, because, uh, you know, I've experienced that in my own career. I, uh, for those who don't know, 
had I work for an organization called Joy's House and we do adult day and caregiver support services. And when I was blessed to start the organization, we're a not-for-profit, you know, 21 years ago, I've had the question over time of, so did you study gerontology? Did you study business? And and in the beginning, I would say, Bruce, I didn't study anything related. And then I, I quickly realized that was an ignorant response for me because I was an English major. I had a counseling uh, you know, equivalent to a counseling undergrad uh, study. And then I have a master's in college student personnel. And my goal was to work with not-for-profit organizations and connect college students. And I was like, I'm doing all of those things, but we don't realize either our studies or our experience lead us to the path where we are. I think it's it's very easy to overlook. I had no idea you were 40 when you came in to the funeral business. That had to be an interesting switch for you. You were doing what before? Well, what's really, uh, I think, interesting, as I mentioned, looking back, I've always had a love of systems and of management, how people work together. And I was a photojournalist and a commercial photographer for many years. So for really 15 to 20 years, I had either experiences or I had clients. As a photographer, I had over 200 clients. I saw how companies work, whether it was a small nonprofit scraping to get by or, you know, a top Fortune 500 company. And I met those people and I interacted with those people and I learned. And like I said earlier, I didn't realize I was getting training. And a lot of people think, uh, you know, your kind of services just happen by caring people or that funeral homes run just because you have caring people. Well, you need systems, you need really good management, you need good operational systems. And I appreciated those and learned about those before I came into the business at 40. And I helped diversify the business, grow the business. It's been a joy for me, but I never became a funeral director because my vision for the company was put the right people in the right positions. I don't want to be waiting on families. It's not, it's not what I would do well. So one of the answers you gave me when I asked about um, what inspires you was a search for beauty. And now that you say you were a photographer, I have that aha moment of, okay, there it is. Is that what you meant when you answered that question? Yeah. And you know, I see the beauty not only in daily life, but in every individual. So I go to funerals one, two, three a day and just greet the families and they're all valuable. There's all beauty in some aspect of their family relationships, who they were, what they did. You know, it's, it's a privilege. Yeah. And when you, when you tell people, when people learn or they meet you for the first time and they know that you are in the funeral business and give the name of the company, if you would, so that everybody knows. Yeah. It's Flanner Buchanan. Yeah. And so when when people learn that you are in the funeral business, what do they automatically assume about you? Well, most funeral homes are one, two, or three locations, very small kind of family practice organizations where they do all the embalming, they wait on the families, they do all the basic funeral things. So they assume that I'm that individual. It used to bother me a little bit, but it doesn't anymore. Because if it's important for me to tell them more about what I do, that's fine. But if I'm going to serve them in some capacity, they need to know I'm not a licensed funeral director. But I think that's what makes you such a great leader and, you know, and businessman is that you, like you said earlier, know how to put the right people in place. And I think there's a misconception about those of us who lead organizations, whether it's a, you know, small not-for-profit like what I 
do professionally or what you do on a much larger scale. I think that there is a common misconception that we know everything and it couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, if you're a really great leader, you know how to put the right people in place. You know how to pivot and, and mold situations to help with growth or not growth. Growth isn't always the goal, um, but to be successful in the mission of the organization. And so I really appreciate you pointing that out because it's something we all need to remember is that great leaders do not know everything. And I always said, when people said, how did you start your organization and how were you successful? I always said, I was smart enough to know I didn't know everything. And I surrounded myself with people who were smarter than me, more connected than me, you know, people that together we lifted up. It wasn't just about lifting me up. It was together, we all lifted up the mission of the organization. And I I hear you saying the same thing. Well, when I was working for newspapers or I had my own business, I was working in the business. And now I'm on the periphery of that, but I work on the business and they're totally different. And I make a point of not drilling down and getting focused on details. I have good people that do that. If I start drilling down into that, then I'm, I'm losing my way. It used to really bother me as as my organization got larger and I wasn't in all of the details because in the beginning I was, I was that, you know, I was part of that central that I was caring for every guest, every person that came here. I knew every caregiver, I knew every detail of everything. And as we got bigger um, for a long time, it bothered me that I didn't have those intimate connections with the people that we were serving, or I didn't have the knowledge of all the details. And then one day I was like, you know what, that's not my job. There, I've, I have way smarter people in those roles. And so you have to learn to let go of some of that. And it's kind of a life lesson. I, I, I'm going to imagine that it's an understatement to say that you've been to a lot of funerals or you just mentioned, you know, that you've met a lot of families uh, over the, the, the years. What have you learned that's important in life? You know, I'm just reminded, and especially as we've gone through some of the challenges of the last year, just uh, how important the basic relationships are that people have and the need to gather. You know, we also do weddings in our business. We have a separate entity for that. That need of comradeship, if that's the right word, when there's a death or there's a birth, that urgency is so, so vital. And some of that's been taken away from us over the last year and people will fight back. They will find a way to gather. Uh, It's been fascinating watching families deal with, at one point, they were only limited to 10 people at a time in the building for a funeral. So imagine if you have a family with, you know, children and grandchildren that could be 10 or 20 or 30 people. And you say, well, you know, you have to go outside in the uh, parking lot and you can come in later. I mean, it just, it doesn't work. Well, I think that's a great point. And I, um, something I had not intended on us you know, talking about today, but let's, let's go there for just a second and then we'll come back to some of this other stuff because I think it's important. So you talk about during COVID, people are restricted for the number of people that can come in for a funeral. And in your mind and in your heart, you remember the days of hundreds of people pouring in, you know, flowers everywhere and people uh, roaming around and hugging and and supporting each other. And did you notice a difference in how the families grieved and started the healing process of a loss of a loved one when they were restricted to smaller numbers? Well, unfortunately, the grieving started in the hospitals and the nursing homes when families could not see their loved ones who were were dying. And COVID became this, uh, it, it just enveloped everything in 
healthcare. And a lot of it, I think, was overdone, but they were being cautious. And so the grieving just started there and continued into uh, a funeral process where people didn't want to feel responsible if someone were to come to a funeral and get COVID. I mean, they didn't want to feel any responsibility for that. But families still got together and they still hugged. And, uh, you know, it's just like I said, it's a it's a basic human need. Uh, you described the grieving starting in the hospital. And I, in my head, saw this almost um, airy blanket of grief you know, kind of um, haunting almost coming over the families and just lingering there in the hospitals or the nursing homes or, you know, on that deathbed and then still being with them at the time of the funeral. And it is, we had a a loss in my own family and um, now granted, bless her heart, she was a hundred years old. Wonderful. (laughs) Service was the day before she was turning 101. Um, It was my stepfather's mother. And you know, I know that was hard to have it limited to just that yes. family and, and talking with my mom and my stepdad, they talked about how wonderful it was to have the little kids there, even though the numbers were so small at the funeral service, it was great to have life. And that's one thing I can say about, um, you know, Bruce, about your organization. And if you're just tuning in, by the way, you're hearing the voice of Bruce Buchanan with Flanner Buchanan and, um, it's one thing I've always appreciated about your organization is that you celebrate the life truly from, you know, you mentioned the wedding services and, but you have always been about celebrating the life. And I, I think there's a lot to be said about that. You know, in high school, um, your life and life perspectives were deeply impacted by a particular coach. Can you tell us about that coach? Well, uh, just a short background is my dad went to uh, park school and he was first in his class and really was a very academic focused person. That wasn't me. And so I actually uh, fought uh, almost a year with him to let me go to Robert Bull High School. I wanted a public education. And I think I knew early that I needed that diverse public uh, interaction. So I had a basketball coach, a black basketball coach who taught me so much a little bit about basketball, but more about life and people. Broderpool was integrating and we needed a dialogue about what was going on in society. And Coach Smith, I can't tell you uh, how wonderful he was and a lot of other students. He died a number of years ago and I still see these comments and tributes to him on Facebook for all the people that uh, he touched in a wonderful way. You and I are of a generation where we were taught to see everyone almost taught not to see color. Yes. But it was um, uh, everyone, everyone is equal and uh, you don't see color, you see the individual. And, you know, as I've gotten older and done some of my own reading and studies, there's a, there's a bit of a fault to that, right? I mean, we, it's t- so much to the point where we don't even identify as a race, as white people. I mean, so I will describe you. You are a, you are a tall, good-looking white man, and I'm white too, and we don't necessarily even identify that way. And so I really appreciate that, you know, decades ago when you were in high school, you had a coach who was willing to go there with you and teach you and help you see not only him and others as individuals, but understand that race relations, it's important and it's important for us to talk about. And we all are equal and we all are individuals. There's also a lot that comes into play when we look at black, white and every other race and uh, good for you because we don't all get that. 
you know, at a young age. You know, I, I mentioned earlier, the early training I got in my life that helped me today. So uh, actually, we purchased uh, about four or five years ago, Lavinian Summers, which is a local uh, black funeral home. Uh, we've integrated them into our program. I think my earlier life experiences helped me with that. It still kept the culture of of who they are, who they are, exactly. right? Yes. Which yes. is critical. I mean, you know, yes. I, I know that funeral home and have um, you know spent time there over the years with people that I've loved through Joy's house. And it mm-hmm. is a, a cultural aspect to that. And I really, you know, hats off to you for recognizing that and keeping that. And you're right. You were smart enough at a very young age to fight to go to broader. My great grandfather was an innovator in cremation. So we started cremation in 1904 and he was once asked if he promoted it. And he says, no, I don't really, I'm not here to promote something over uh, something else. It's what do people want? What do families want? Years ago, um, Joy's house has a, a, what was a radio show and now a podcast called Caregiver Crossing. And we did a cremation tour at your downtown location. Bruce, that was one of the coolest things I've done. Um, And we did it live. We did it live and we had an audience that watched along with us. And I had so many people say, I've always been curious about what happens with cremation. You just mentioned it and made me start thinking. I am so grateful that you allowed us in and that you do those cremation tours for anyone. Anybody can do those tours, you know, coming off of COVID. We'll we'll see where the days take us. But it was a fascinating experience to see one, how every cremation is done with love and care and individual concern and done with safety. And, you know, after being there, I have always said I wanted to be cremated. And after coming through for that cremation tour, it solidified the fact that that is what I want done when I'm done with this body. I really appreciate you letting us in. It makes me, you know, like feel something when I say it because it was a life-changing experience for me. So there's some things that we're afraid of or that we think we don't like. I mean, I never liked studying for a physics test in high school, but when I was done, I felt pretty good about it, right? I think cremation is the same way. You don't really want to know a lot about it, but once you do, just like planning your own funeral, uh, it feels good to have that. For sure. Thanks, All right, Bruce, we need to talk about something and it's very personal and important. Um, You know the name of this podcast is Embrace the Imbalance. So embrace the imbalance. And you, my friend, believe very strongly in balance. And I promise not to pick a fight or be offended, but I want to hear your thoughts on this because it is important to balance in general is important to a lot of people. So what does balance mean to you? Balance to me is something that I learned, I think, at my first job out of college. I was a photojournalist. I thought my whole life was about living and breathing that new profession. I started burning out after about a year and a half two years, because all I did was socialize with people that believed and did what I did. You know, I slept and ate it all day long. And I realized I wasn't taking care of myself. I wasn't eating very well. I really wasn't sleeping very well. Uh, My relationships maybe were not that strong either. So I was going, you know, I need a balance, different things within my life. Of course, that's something my dad was preaching growing up, right? And I didn't pay too much attention to it. You don't until you have some experiences that go, yeah, that uh, that makes sense. You know, you you are you're smart. Like you are very emotionally intelligent, and I think anybody who knows you or spends you know twenty minutes talking with you can figure that out. You have always had that, though, haven't you? Even as a small child. Yeah, I think it's somewhat as innate. You know, my dad was a great book learner. I was not a great 
book learner, but I, I'm a big picture person. And uh, actually I get frustrated if I talk to a long storyteller who doesn't really tell me why they're telling me what they're telling me. Which gets to your point earlier, understand who you're talking to. So like with my management team, I know how to talk to them. I know some people like a story. Some people don't want to hear a story. Some people want to know the number. They don't want to know anything else. So it can't be about me. It's got to be about who you're talking to. Bruce, one of the things you said to me that I thought was so fascinating is that if you could go back and give yourself some advice as a young adult, that you would say, live your life backwards, you know, live and live and plan your life backwards. What does that mean? I think uh, most humans uh, rely on luck, circumstance, uh, the benefit of what others do for them. And then they hope they'll get to a certain point. And I'm not talking about having a, a organized uh, by generation uh, life plan. You know, I've decided I want to live to be 100 years old. So that is highly unlikely that I'll make it to 100. But what am I going to do to get there? Well, I'm going to probably try to sleep well. I'm going to try to eat well. I'm going to try to get some exercise. I'm going to have to take care of myself. And I'm not going to rely on drugs or doctors to fix me. If that comes along, that's great. But I don't want to rely on that. And I think most people rely on that. If something happens to me, something will fix it. And I hope I make it to a ripe old age. Well, what in life gets you there without a plan? I mean, you plan to go to college, a lot of people, right? They, they plan to, to retire at a certain age. So why not have a, a broader life plan? And you just start where you want to end up and work back. Living life backwards. I've never thought of it like that. That's brilliant. Like I need to sit down and figure out what, what mine looks like, because you're right. We, mm, I'd like to say I, I try to thrive in life, but there's a lot of survival. Just how do I survive to the next decade or year or sometimes week or day. I love that. And when I look, I'm, again, I'm feeling very visual today. So when you say, you know, live to be a hundred, for instance, I think of how much life there's left in there. Oh yeah. And immediately yeah. go to more travels, more worldly experiences. I mean, you know, on your deathbed, what are the relationships you want to have? And what are the things you don't yeah. want to regret? Uh, you know, I think in my business working with older adults, I, I see a lot of people at the end of their life. And there are a lot of conversations about what they regret or what they don't, the highlights of their life and the highlights of their life aren't usually the work they did. Now, I would say, you know, for you and me, there's some exception there. And for a lot of other people, there's an exception and a fulfillment and a, a mission in there of what we do professionally. But it's about relationships. And you said that same thing about funerals. Well, I learned that lesson, uh, in, in many ways, kind of backwards. When I was 50, I'm now 65, I went to have a stress test just to get a baseline on, on how my heart is doing. And the doctor said, Bruce, I got your results back. You have a zero. You, you're in perfect health. You have no heart problems whatsoever. Now, both of my grandparents had heart problems in their 60s, right? So I got this good news. And then right after he told me that, he said, Bruce, but if you really want to live a long, happy life, you need to give up wheat and sugar. And I looked at him like, what? You just told me I'm healthy. Why do I need to give these things up? He spent an hour telling me why and how they contribute to uh, disease, overweight, all sorts of health problems. And then I started going, what do I want? Do I want to live to be 100 and see grandchildren or do I want a donut? Uh, it's a pretty easy decision if you make it more important and you just don't leave it to happenstance. And until I was 50, I was, you know, I lived fairly healthy. But I just figured, you know, 
well, see, I have genetic issues like everybody else. And, you know, I try to watch my sweets, but I wasn't really living with purpose. And after that, it took me about a year to digest what he told me. And I really began living with purpose. For our young adults who are listening, I mean, when you're young, you feel invincible, right? And you're, you're not thinking about what happens in 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. I think that going through this world pandemic that we've been through, it will be so beautiful to see who we become as a people on the other side of it and how powerful our young adults become in thinking about longevity and their impact in the world. I think people are embracing their mortality again because it's, uh, it's been in society. So I think that will have positive outcome. They used to have funerals in the home and children understood death and they saw death. Now we hide death and we deny death. I've embraced it. I mean, it's coming. And uh, you can look at some, uh, some great philosophers who said, if you don't embrace death, you fear it. And that fear is detrimental. There's only one way out of this world and it's through death. Yeah. It's just, it's a fact. We all have one thing in common and that is, you know, we, we are born and we die. I mean, there's a lot more in common, but. Well, and it's harder on other people than it is on you when you die. Well, Bruce Buchanan, you are, uh, you're fascinating. I have no doubt that you will be on some kind of speaking engagement tour because you have so much to teach other people. And so I am so grateful you took the time to be with us here and embrace the imbalance. It's been wonderful. The time has flown by. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. All right, friends, if you haven't already, please join us on social media at Embrace the Imbalance, or you can email me directly at embracetheimbalance at gmail.com. Again, I'm Tina. And no matter what, I hope you'll join us next week. And thanks so much for being here today.